this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. I have the privilege of uh, speaking with you this morning about chapter 14 of John. So if you have a Bible, you want to find it. John chapter 14. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into the text. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you call us to be participants in doing your will and bringing glory to you in the lives that you provided as we live now and uh, after we go to be with you, how that work that you do through us will continue, will bring glory to the Father. We just thank you for your love for us and ask that you will be uh, glorified in all that goes on, ask that your word will be clear, that we'll take it, apply it, and let the gospel work in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 14. This is, Pastor kind of hinted at it last week, this is the beginning of what what are called the farewell discourses. These are are passages in, um, in John where Jesus knows what lies ahead, and he's giving last instructions to his believers. I would call it kind of a sort of a last will and testament. Uh, Jesus has a couple of objectives. In this chapter, his main objective is to provide comfort for his disciples. But this isn't isn't the kind of comfort like, oh, I know what you're going through. It's going to be really tough, and just hang in there, you know, sort of like the cat hanging from the tree, you know. It's not that at all. this, this is real comfort with a real helper to come along. We're going to talk about that helper tonight in the Holy Spirit. So this isn't, isn't kind of kind words. This is the truth that's going to come ahead. And it's also to provide instruction for them in the future of the gospel. Um, what, happens, what happens is Jesus is telling them, for instance, when I say uh, the future of the gospel in the Second part of this chapter, he's telling them, I'm going to provide a helper. In the end of this passage this morning, he tells them, I'm, you're going to do bigger works than I do. And we're not going to get into that. We don't have time this morning. In chapter 15, he's going to talk about bearing fruit. And he's going to tell them that he's the vine. He expects them to bear fruit. So these are things that he wants them to know so that the gospel itself will be carried on. Now, if you... Think about this for a minute. If you knew, there's nothing wrong with you, you're not in bad health, but you knew that in three or four days that was it, what would you tell the people you really love? I mean, what, what would you say to them, okay? I come from a family that doesn't say much, and I, I mentioned it. I know where the will is. It's in the box in the bank in Brady. I don't know which bank. I just know it's at the bank, okay? So who knows? My parents pass away, and I'll be calling up on the phone. Hey, this is so-and-so. Is my parents' will there? You know, that kind of thing. But Jesus has a different perspective. My parents are going, what they're doing is they're dividing up the assets that they have. We have this land, we have this money, we have this, and we're going to leave it to these people. Jesus' goal is completely different. Number one, he understands that treasures on earth don't last. We all know that, right? Yeah, y'all, you're nodding yes, but I, I, we all know that treasures don't last. But we spend a lot of time providing for for those treasures and then making sure that we get those treasures to pass on. 
Okay? Jesus is different. His concern, number one, is for the glory of God. He says in uh, John 12, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. If you remember when he raised Lazarus from the dead, why did he say he did it? It was for the glory of God. The man who was born blind, what, what was it for? It was for the glory of God. John points this out completely through, this, through the whole book, and he just reminds us that that's, that's what it's for. Okay, so Jesus' words here are for their comfort, but it's for God's glory. Just remember that we're always going to focus towards the real end goal, not, not the present living situation. Now, the first thing we want to talk about is comfort. If you look in John chapter 1, verse 1, we see it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Well, if you go to the end of the chapter, in verse 27, it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I I was not real good at English growing up, but I remember when you started a paper, you had to tell them what the paper was about. Right? And then you had to wrap it up with what the paper was about. So I remember the first guy that that talked to me about preaching. He said, this is the way preaching works. You tell them what you want them to know. Then you remind them what you told them. Then you close up with what you told them you wanted them to know. Okay. Jesus tells them he's going to give them comfort. He wants them not to be afraid. At the end, after he's mentioned he's going to give the Holy Spirit, he mentions, peace I live with you. Okay. That's, that's one of the works of the Holy Spirit. Now, how did they get to this point where Jesus is having to give them comfort? Well, Peter asks a question. He says, Lord, where are you going? Seems like a logical question to me. And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter asks again, Lord, why can we not follow? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterwards. Now, knowing what we know, it's easy to see how God was working in their lives. But you know what they say, hindsight, you know, twenty twenty, right? Isn't it much easier, adults, teenagers, children, just close your ears for a minute, okay? Isn't it much easier, knowing what you know now, to look back at your children and see what they're going through and kind of go, oh, I know what that is. Can you imagine the apostles? They're trying to go through stuff. And they don't have a clue what's coming. Do they really know what's coming up? Jesus says, I'm going away. He's talked, talked about being lifted up. But do they really know that the cross is ahead of him? Do they really know he's going to ascend to heaven? They don't know any. And if he told them that, would it really comfort them at the time? What he's doing is he's giving instruction. Okay? So... As he gives them instruction, the first thing that he tells them, he tells them faith is the road to comfort. If you look at your your Bible, it says, believe in God, believe also in me. That's faith, right? Faith. You understand? In Hebrews 11.6, it says what? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Sometimes we get faith kind of mixed up a little bit, okay? You know... We might believe something. Let me give you a good example. My grandmother, who has been passed away for a while, 
she believed airplanes were the greatest way to travel. She just thought airplanes were terrific. And she had every faith that you could visit her on an airplane. But guess what she was not going to do? She wasn't going to fly on an airplane. She wasn't coming on an airplane. You weren't going to get her on an airplane. But you could come visit her. So she didn't think they were that unsafe or she wouldn't have let us travel on them. Okay? But she didn't really have faith in airplanes because she would have hopped on one and flown. So faith is more than that. Let me give you an example, a biblical example of faith. This is about Abraham. Abraham, it says in Romans 4, 3, says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a quote from Genesis 15. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Now, when I look at that, I'm going, Oh, yeah, Abraham was a man of faith. Look where he went. Abraham left his home. He went here. These verses are stated before he ever obeyed God. These verses are stated when God says... I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Did Abraham ever see that? He never saw it, but he had faith. Okay? And that faith was counted to him as righteousness. Um, I personally like to lump works and faith together. Anybody like that? Oh, come on. You, you've done that. If they really, you know, if they really believe God, they would do this. You know, if they really believe... We're all kind of kind of like that a lot of times. And, and I, think, I think a lot of times it comes from the simple fact that growing up, I wasn't that bad kid. You know, I came to faith in Christ when I was seven years old. And it, it wasn't because anybody pushed me, okay? It was just something that I heard the invitation. I said, I like that idea. And I came to faith in Christ, and Jesus saved me. But, but growing up, I kept hearing, well, if you love Jesus, you'll do this for him. I'm not saying that works aren't important. But works do not save you, and works do not count when it comes to faith. Okay? As, as, as a, a writer once said, God doesn't need your works, your neighbors do. Okay? So, you, you take that for what, what it's worth. But a guy by the uh, name of F.F. F. Bruce says this, The principle on which Abraham was justified, being one that excludes the idea of accumulating merit by works of piety and righteousness, is one that is equally available to the ungodly, who have no such works to rely on. So the tax collector in the parable went home justified rather than the Pharisee, not because his merit was great, it was much less, but because realizing the futility of self-reliance, he cast himself entirely on God's grace. Uh, Bruce goes on to say this, No wonder that Paul thought it necessary above to maintain that God... In justifying sinners, nevertheless, preserves his personal integrity. Once they are justified, indeed, the ungodly should cease from being ungodly. But it is not on the basis of any foreseen amendment of their ways that they are justified. If we fail to appreciate the moral problem involved in God's forgiving grace, it may be because we have not yet considered how serious a thing is sin. The paradox of the justifying of the ungodly is resolved in Romans. Christ died for the ungodly. You understand, Jesus didn't die for you because after you got saved, you're going to do lots of really good works and that's going to make it all better. Jesus died for you because you were ungodly. He died for me because I was ungodly. I told you, as a, as a kid growing up, I accepted Christ very early. And one of the things that somebody said when I was a teenager, they said, you know, the guy who's really bad, that's just done all the terrible stuff, 
He, he needed Jesus to die on the cross, but you've been pretty good. You needed the same death and the same, the, the same redemption. That's like, really? I thought it was pretty good. No. A sin is a sin. Jesus died for our sins. Okay, it says here, whether we get a little puffed up about this, in Isaiah it says, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. It's only through the grace of Christ that the work that we do that he gets to use it. Okay? It's there that he gets to move us into the acts of serving him as we share the gospel, as we work in the cause for the gospel. It's those things that bear fruit because they're done because of him, not because of us. Okay? It's, it's his work from beginning to end. Somebody once said you need the gospel to get saved, and then after that you need good works. No, you need the gospel to get saved, and then you needed the gospel to live. It doesn't change. Okay? And uh, growing up, I was never really taught that, and I think sometimes we need to be reinforced with that. Uh, a guy by the name of Tullian Tavigian, who is Billy Graham's uh, grandson, he says this. He says, I'm all for effort, good works, fighting sin, resisting temptation, as long as we understand that it is not our work for God, but God's work for us that has fully and finally set things right between God and sinners. Second of all, uh, Jesus reminds us about the God of comfort. Okay? In this, Jesus reminds us about he and the Father and the relationship. He says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This oneness, if you remember, Jesus keeps coming back to this time and time again. He keeps telling people who he is. We're going to mention it later. But you understand, in the New Testament, Jesus never hid that he was the Son of God. He never hid that he was God. Okay? If somebody tells you, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus was a good teacher, but he never claimed to be God, they've never read the Bible. Okay? That's just the truth. They can say what they want, but Jesus claims to be God. And the thing about it is, the Jews in his day, the Pharisees, they knew it. It says here, the Jews picked up a stone against him, and the Jews answered him, it is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood exactly what he was claiming to be, who he was claiming to be. He was God. But that's what gives us comfort. Jesus is, is part of the Trinity. And so, therefore, when our life abides in the Holy Spirit and in Christ, we have fellowship with the Father. That's a comfort to us. It's, it's not like we've got to work our way up anywhere or do anything better. Jesus did the work that we need to be justified before the Father. The other thing that we're going to notice is that Jesus tells them that there's a house, a big house. You remember the song? Come and go with me to my Father's house. Come and go with me to my Father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. When I learned this verse growing up, this is the first verse I learned. I mentioned in the other service. I didn't learn John 3.16 first. <gasps> You've know, you got to teach him John 3.16. I learned John 14.1. You know, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'd go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. I want you to think for a minute. In my Father's house are many what, mansions. Think a minute. Can you have mansions inside a house? 
the reason the word gets there is because there's a Latin translation of the Bible, and they use a word, mansionis, which translates in English mansions. But that's not what the original Greek said. It said rooms. And so in our Western mind, and in my Western mind, I'm thinking, eh, I'm going to go to heaven, and somebody's going to be standing there at the gate going, hey, I got a key for you. Your mansion's over here, right? It's not it at all. The, the real concept here is, is kind of like this. Let me see if I can explain this with a quote from a guy. If a son got married before he brought his bride home, he would do this. Uh, in Jesus' day, many dwelling units were combined to form an extended household. It was customary for sons to add to their father's house once married, so that the entire estate grew into a large compound centered around a communal courtyard. So what would happen is the son would go build a room onto his father's house, and the family would continue to grow. Just think, Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. I'm going to get you and bring you back. He's not going to get the believers and bring them back and then segment them out in their own little houses. He's bringing them back. That's why I use the word family, family, family. It's all about relationship. We talk about relationship, but we kind of miss the point. We kind of start getting our 20th century mindset. Oh, I'm going to get a big house, and I'm going to have this and have that. No, it's about Jesus. It's about being part of the family. Think of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can you imagine every tongue, every tribe, every nation set down for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Pretty big house, okay? And it's not like little people over here and little people. It's not like those jokes they used to say. Who are those people over there? They're the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. You know, it's none of that, okay? It's, it's, where, it's where we, the family of God, are all together in the presence of God, enjoying Him. Enjoying the presence of Him. Just think about it for a minute. If that's all you got when you got to heaven, was to enjoy the presence of the Father, wouldn't that be enough? But I've grown up a lot of times thinking, man, I wish I had this, and I wish I, I, does that get to go, and does this get to go? All it shows me is that my, my heart's inclinations are towards things that are temporal, where God wants to show me that his inclinations are towards a relationship with him that lasts forever, and the better things, okay, for the better and the best things. And Jesus himself says he's going to the Father to prepare that place. Now, we talk about preparation. He doesn't tell them everything, but we know, for instance, that that preparation includes the cross. Okay? Jesus says this. He says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And John 1.29 says, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just remember, if there is no cross, if there's no death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ... There's no, re, there's no going to the Father, okay? That has to be taken care of. Our redemption has to be secured. And Jesus, when he's talking about going to prepare a place, they may be thinking house. Jesus is thinking house, but I've got to stop on the way that's going to be a little painful, okay? And, and it's just a different concept. And Jesus reminds them not only is he going, but he's going and he's coming again. We won't delve into this, but the Bible assures us that Jesus Christ will come again. When Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts, the angel said, just as you saw him leave, you'll see him come again. 
Okay? So we know that Jesus will come again. His statement, the angel's statement, the apostle's statements, that thing is a, is a secure. Okay? Sometimes we might wonder why it doesn't happen now. Again, if Jesus told you exactly what would happen, it might not help. Okay? So what he reminds us of is to always go back and place our trust in him. Now, the question. Jesus has made all of these statements, and Thomas asks a question. So the question is this, okay? He says, um, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? When I read that, I had this question. How can you know the way to a destination if you don't know the destination? Kind of difficult. If I told you to go to my parents' house right now, just take off, go to my parents' house. How many of you going to get there? None of you, okay? Trust me, you're not going to get there. It's in the middle of nowhere. Well, why are you not going to get there? I haven't given you directions. Well, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't really give them directions. He gives them a way to get there. And he talks about, first of all, I am. This statement of I am the way, the I am is really important. In the Old Testament, when Moses was commanded of God to deliver the people of Israel, Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And what did God say? I am. That's it. How'd you like those for instructions? Who shall I say sent me? I am. Work for you? I'd been terrified. Oh, come on, think about it. Wouldn't you have been terrified if God said, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and when, he, when they say, who sent me? I am. That's your answer. That just doesn't sound real comforting. But it's very comforting, okay? First of all, Jesus goes back, and this is part of the reason the scribes and Pharisees are mad at him. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, he's stating he is God, Okay? It's, it's not a hidden fact. He's making that statement. And Jesus also makes seven other I am statements in, in, this, in this book. You remember when Pastor started preaching, he started preaching about seven signs. Okay? Well, there are seven I am statements. I think that's not a coincidence. Okay? Or as we say, sometimes a dink. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's not that. Jesus is making these statements, and they are clearly they are clearly to identify him with God. He says, I am the bread of life. You remember manna? It, it was the bread out of heaven. Jesus is making this statement. I am the bread of life. I'm the manna that just satisfies, okay? I'm the light of the world. We see, and you can see some of the scriptures out of John's gospel where he keeps stating these things. He says, I am the door to the sheep, Okay? I am the good shepherd. Shepherd in the Old Testament, we see just picture and picture and picture where God says he's going to send a shepherd to shepherd his people Israel. Okay? He says, I am the resurrection and life. He did that when he raised Lazarus. Okay? So then today we've got I am the way and the truth and the life. Next week you have I am the true vine. These I am statements keep bringing us back to God. Okay? It's interesting to me that when he says, don't, don't be afraid, he brings you to faith in God, and he keeps focusing on faith in God. He will, he will just stay there. If you go back to chapter 8, he argues with the scribes and Pharisees about he and the Father. All about God, okay? All about who he is. And Jesus says, I am the way. Now, 
If you want to go to my parents' house, you need a location. But not if I lead you, right? If I lead you, you follow me, we're going to get there, hopefully, if you drive as slow as I do, okay? So Jesus says he is the way. He's not giving them a location. He's giving them a person. That's all in keeping with the Christian faith. Christian faith is not about a bunch of rules. It's not about, like, I've got a way to live now, you know? If I keep these five rules and I do these things here and I, I... X out these boxes, and all of a sudden, I'm going on the way to heaven. No, the way to heaven is Jesus. It's a person. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? So Jesus also said to them, when I am lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am he. These statements about him is that he is the way. Jesus says he is the truth. Anybody here ever have to study philosophy? Isn't that fun? <laughs> Existentialism, neotomism, idealism, epistemology, exeology, all of those all of those terms which I can't remember what they mean, okay? Their their philosophy, their ways of thought that get pe- people think that help them live life. But Jesus tells us that real truth is not found in a system, it's found in him. Jesus makes this statement. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You really want to have comfort? You really want to be free from the worries of this world? Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the one who gives us what we need. Jesus is the life. Jesus, uh, again, we go back to this point. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the way, and here's the truth, and here's where you find life. I am the way. You want truth? I'm it. You want life? I'm it. It's all found in Jesus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I kind of like that, okay? Uh, I had a friend, had a friend uh, who's passed away and gone to be with the Lord, and Brother Mark said he wasn't afraid of death. He just didn't want to pay the ticket, Okay? So I'm like, I kind of understand how that goes. I'm not sure I'm ready for the journey. But the truth is, if you know Jesus, you never, you never die, okay? How does that work? It's all found in Jesus. If Jesus could die, be buried, rise again, have the world see him, easy to trust that because it happened. And it didn't happen in a vacuum. It's not some little myth that somebody made up, okay? Jesus did stuff out in the open, okay? It's not like some guy had a secret word, okay? So, uh, D.A. Carson says this about that statement about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And I think uh, you can't state it better than guys that are smart like this. He says, Jesus is the way to God because he is the truth of God and the life of God. Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He himself narrates God, says and does exclusively what the Father gives him to say and do. Indeed, he is properly called God. He is God's gracious self-disclosure, his word made flesh. Jesus is the life, the one who has life in himself, the resurrection in the life, the true God, and the eternal life. Only because he is the truth and the life can Jesus be the way for others to come to God. 
the way for his disciples to attain the many dwelling places in the Father's house, and therefore he becomes the answer to Thomas's question. So, remember Jesus started out telling them, don't worry, look to the Father. You believe the Father, believe me. Thomas has a question, and Jesus doesn't get sidetracked with the question. He's not afraid of the question. He answers it, but he comes back to his original point. In verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have also known my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And they go on with this discussion. Well, show us the Father. And Jesus keeps reminding them. In the next passage that we'll look at tonight about the Holy Spirit, Jesus reminds us that the work of the Holy Spirit is the same as his work, to glorify the Father. And you'll keep seeing this same theme running throughout the passage. So, what does this have for us? What, what does all this have for us? You know, we, we read these verses, we learn about comfort, we learn about faith in God, we learn about, you know, Jesus being the way, the truth, and life, and then we go home, right? No, it, it, the work of Christ has to apply to our lives, okay? Um, for some of you this morning, I mentioned it, you know, uh, any of the guys that tell you, in a large crowd, there are a bunch of you that don't have any comfort, you may be believers, you may not be believers, but you don't have any comfort. You're either worried about the world, worried about the government, worried about tomorrow, worried about the money, worried about your health. I'm not saying that they're not real concerns, but you don't have peace in those things. Okay? You understand that the apostles, Jesus is telling them to have comfort and have peace. What's ahead for them? persecution, prison, death at the hands of people who hate Jesus. And he tells them they can have peace. Well, if they can have peace in that kind of situation, we can surely have peace with our kind of situation. Ours is nothing like that. Because of the work of Christ, you can have peace. And I'm not talking about just peace with God, which, which Jesus paid for on the cross. You can have peace with God, but you can have peace every day. If, if Jesus' word is true, then it means it's true for us at every moment of every point in our life. It doesn't mean that we like what we're going through, but it does mean that Jesus can give us peace. Can you imagine the apostles dying and having peace? That just, doesn't that seem antithetical to you? But they can have it because of the work of the cross, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Second of all, some of you have never really dealt with this issue of faith. I know, I know you say you have, but I know you haven't, okay? You say, you, say, you know, I'm a Christian. This is, this is the way I stated it. Some of you today, your Christian life has been about what you believe, not about Jesus in you. I would like to call it Christian light, Okay? You, you have this idea that you prayed a prayer, or you got baptized, or you, you did something spectacular, and in that moment in time, you're saved, okay? But I'm telling you, salvation is not just a moment in time, but it's about birth, okay? If we had a baby that was born and never progressed, we'd never say that was normal, Okay? 
And when it comes to faith in Christ, it is normal to grow and have a relationship to Christ. J.D. Greer, in a book, stated it this way. He says, If at some point in the future you begin to doubt whether or not you really have put your faith in Jesus, do you look backwards to try and remember the moment when you first hopped into his arms? I suppose you could. Better, though, would be to look at where you are currently resting. If you're right now resting in his arms, knowing when you began to rest is less important than that you are resting right now. Your present posture is more important than a past memory. Conversion is not completing a ritual. It is a commence, is commencing a relationship. The assurance of ritual is based on accurate words and memory. The assurance of relationship is based on a present posture of repentance and belief. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together. Mm-hmm.